Well, good morning, church. It does feel a little cold here this morning, does it not? <laughs> um, but we're going to read God's Word together, and hopefully that's going to warm up your heart at least. <laughs> so uh, we're in the series in Matthew, so if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, we can continue studying about Jesus, uh, who is the object or the person of our worship, and, uh, and we're excited to, I'm excited to bring the Word to you today. So turn with me to chapter 5 of Matthew, and we're going to begin with verse 1 to verse 6. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 6. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Our Father, we come to your word this morning. We expect much from your word because your word is truth. Your word is life. Lord, even though we feel cold this morning, yet we know, God, that your word, we can sense love, we can sense warmth, we can sense the love that Jesus is expressing here in these verses. And Father, we pray, Father, that as we are coming to your word this morning, we truly know how much you love us, that you care for us, that you want us to be with you. So, Father, may we come to you this morning and repent of our sins and embrace your love and be in your presence. Lord, may your word change us this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We may not, or we may all give our lives to pursue the right things, but we may not always pursue the right things for the right reasons. We may all give our lives to pursue the right things. However, we may not always pursue them for the right reasons. This past week, my family and I were prepping for the Thanksgiving dinner and Whenever we go and wherever we go, we always see cars and people everywhere. And whenever we step into a supermarket, we will see people's faces and literally people are frustrated with one another because of the amount of preparation that they must do in order to prepare for the Thanksgiving dinner. They're in a rush and everybody seems to be in their, own, in their way. My wife and I, we, or my wife was walking down the supermarket aisle and there was a lady that parked her car right in the middle of the aisle. And my wife reached out her hand and sought to move the cart by a little bit. And this lady basically yelled at my wife saying, don't touch that car, that's my cart. Now I don't know what happened to the lady right before my wife met her. Apparently she's going through a lot of stress in the Thanksgiving season. But I do know one thing. This season of Thanksgiving presents to us many burdens. We feel many burdens in this season. A lot of pressure in this season. This season presents us pressure because we feel burdened that we must prepare a Thanksgiving dinner. We must host a dinner for the family get-together. We feel burdened by this season also for many of us because many of us are traveling. We must book the ticket and we must travel to home in order to be with our family. And we don't want to travel that far or spend the time traveling during this busy season. And certainly, for many of us, after we get home, we feel that we must spend time with that individual or that family member that we don't like. 
that across that Thanksgiving table, there's that person that we don't like, and we must spend time talking to them or interacting with them, and we don't look forward to that. So we feel burdened in this Thanksgiving season. We feel like this season presents to us a lot of pressure. However, our pressure is not necessarily because of the season. The burden which we are feeling is really because of our sin. You see, the season only reveals to us how much of a sinner we are. Sin is what makes us yell or frustrated at one another when we don't like the other person, when that person standing our way in that supermarket. Sin is what makes us isolated in bitterness when we don't want to spend time with our family, we rather just be alone by ourselves. Sin is what makes us say rude, unkind things to that person across that dinner table because we don't like that person. Not just in Thanksgiving season, sin is actually something that we deal with pretty much every day in our lives. We sin in selfishness, we sin in pride, we sin in bitterness, we sin in jealousy every day. And in this Thanksgiving season, instead of thanking God, instead of appreciating God, the holy God who cannot tolerate sin, who is just allowing us to live and is, is still giving us bread, water, air for us to eat, instead of thanking Him, this Thanksgiving season we're thanking ourselves, we're celebrating ourselves, we're celebrating our own accomplishments. This only shows how unappreciative we are of God who allows us to live, who gives us grace every day in our lives. The holy God who is righteous, who is just, who cannot tolerate sin in his presence, must one day judge sinners according to his righteousness. And each one of us who are sinners in his sight stand in danger of being judged by God in eternity in hell. God, however, because he loves us and he cares for us and desires not to send us to hell, but wants us to turn our ways around and to believe unto him, sent us the perfect gift. A perfect gift in which we can be thankful for, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth, and he died on the cross for our sins. He lived the perfect life only in the end to give his perfect life to us. He died on the cross, for, not for himself, but for us, so that he may pay for the penalty of our sins. With his perfect life, with our sins paid for, we're now restored to God. We have a perfect, pure relationship with God. We're pure and righteous before God because of Jesus Christ. Not only so, Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead so that we can also be raised from the dead. He showed us that he has power over death so that whoever believes unto him are going to live with him forever and ever in his eternal kingdom, which he promised to those who believe unto him. Given what Jesus has done for us, given the fact that Jesus has given his life for us and prepared the eternal kingdom for us, today in this passage, we're going to find out that Jesus is calling us to pursue him and pursue his eternal kingdom above any other earthly thing. We're called to pursue Jesus and his kingdom here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. As you know, we have been working through the Beatitudes, speaking on these eight blessings which Jesus is pronouncing to those who believe unto him. 
And certainly we need this because our lives are filled with sin. Our lives are filled with envy. Our lives are filled with jealousy. Our lives are filled with bitterness, filled with lust. We're sinners before God by nature. And we stand in judgment before God because God is holy and He cannot stand sin in His sight. And we are certainly going to be in danger of eternal judgment in hell if we do not repent. However, today, if we do repent of our sins and do pursue Jesus and Him as our Lord and Savior, God is gracious and He's going to remove our sins from us. He's going to forgive us. He's going to cleanse us. He's going to bring us into that perfect relationship with Him in which you are pure and right in His eyes. God is calling us in this passage to abandon all and to pursue Jesus and His kingdom. Here in the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 through 6, we're going to see characteristics of men or women of God who trust and believe unto Jesus. The Beatitudes speaks about kingdom citizens. You must possess these characteristics in order to be a part of the kingdom of God. And the first characteristic, which we're going to study here in today's sermon, as we have already studied through a couple of characteristics last week, being poor in spirit and also being mournful before God. The next characteristic, which we're going to study in this sermon, or in today's sermon, is the characteristic of being meek before God. Those who belong to the kingdom of God are meek before God. Read with me now in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So in this portion called the Beatitudes, which is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples characteristics of men or women of God who belong to the kingdom of God. And anyone who belongs to the kingdom of God must display in their lives the characteristic of meekness. By way of review, we know that up to this point in Jesus' ministry, he is becoming increasingly popular. We saw this throughout our study in Matthew. He's demonstrating to all that he is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords and he's bringing this kingdom of God to this earth. He's bringing this kingdom of God and he's teaching them what the kingdom of God is like. He's teaching them that they must believe unto him in order to enter into his kingdom. They must repent of their sins and believe. He's also demonstrating to all the realities of this kingdom by performing miracles and signs. He's healing people. In the kingdom of God, in the reality of that kingdom, in that forever kingdom, there's not going to be any death, there's not going to be any decay, there's not going to be any sickness. So he, therefore, as he's coming in and showing people what the kingdom is like, he's literally showing them what it is like by healing them. People are coming to Jesus in droves. He's telling them, the people who are coming to them, that is, if people repent of their sins and believe unto him, they shall enter into this kingdom which he is showing them. As Jesus now is powerfully demonstrating to everyone what the kingdom of God is like, many are waiting for this kingdom. They're waiting for Jesus to bring in this kingdom because they definitely want Jesus to be their king. In order for Jesus to be their king, that is, they must throw off 
the current empire that is ruling over them. You see, the Jews are serving under different empire at this time in the book of Matthew. They're serving under the kingdom of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is ruling over them at this time. They know what it means like to be ruled, that is, the Jews. Because for much of the Jewish history, they were ruled by various kingdoms. Ever since the Babylonian captivity in 586 BC, the Jews were ruled. They were ruled by the Babylonian Empire. After that, they were ruled by the Empire of the Persian and the Medes. After that, they were ruled by Alexander the Great, by the Greeks. They overthrew that for a little bit during the Maccabean Revolt. But after that, they were ruled by the Romans. And the Romans came in and exacted a brutal taxation system upon the Jews. So the Jews hated being ruled by other people. They don't want any other kingdom over them. They want their own kingdom. So as Jesus now is preaching that he is going to bring in this kingdom of God, the Jews are happy. They want this kingdom. That sounded exciting for the Jews. In fact, people expect Jesus to overthrow the Romans in order to establish this kingdom. In order for them to be a kingdom, Jesus must lead them in battle. They must overthrow the Romans in order to become a physical kingdom that the Romans respect. And seeing the fact that Jesus can conduct miracles, he can do miracles, he can cast out demons, he can do all these things, supernatural things that no one else can do, they're certainly expecting Jesus having the power as he claims that he has in order to lead them to establish a coup against the Romans. However, one problem exists and exists right here in the Beatitudes. Jesus began teaching, began showing them what they must be in order to enter into this kingdom in which the Jews are quite excited about. First, you must be poor in spirit. Those who belong to the kingdom of God believe that they have nothing to offer God in their spiritual accomplishments. Second, you must mourn over your sins. Those people who belong to the kingdom of God mourn over their sins. Third, Jesus is teaching, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You must be meek in order to enter into this kingdom. None of these qualities which Jesus is mentioning in some way or form in their minds, in the Jewish mind, attribute to them becoming the army they needed to be in order to overthrow the Romans. Being meek doesn't help you. They saw enough empires. They saw the power of the empires that ruled over them. Those are meek. Being poor in spirit doesn't help them to become the army they needed to be. Mourning over sins does not help them to become the army that they needed to be. Jesus must become that fierce warrior king in order to retake control of the land from the Romans. And these characteristics does not help them at all. It makes no sense at all they needed to be this in order to be the kingdom in this world that which they wanted themselves to be. After all, the Jews understood meekness as you and I understand meekness. Meekness is an inner attitude of humility. It comes out of humility. The person who is meek, 
is willing to go along with other people, submit to them. That's a meek person. A meek person does not defend him or herself when other people falsely accuse them or take advantage of him. A meek person can be used as a doormat, and certainly he does not always cry foul when other people do so. Even Jesus lists examples of meekness here later on in the Sermon on the Mount, saying that if someone slaps you on the left cheek, turn the right to him as well. If someone takes your clothes, then give him your cloak. That's meekness. An attitude of meekness is an attitude of able to bend your will toward others, bend your will to others, even endure unfair attacks, false accusations. If you're meek, you would do this. Certainly, in our day, in our culture, we don't appreciate meekness. We don't. Because we don't really understand why someone would even think of this as a virtue. Why is meekness even a virtue? We value someone else. We value the movers and the shakers. We value those who are strong, powerful, those who can influence the crowd, those who are uninfluenced. And we despise those who are quiet. We despise those who are willing to sacrifice, willing to serve others, willing to bend their will according to the desire of others. We don't value them. We think that they're weak. I think one of the greatest examples of meekness is in the scripture, if you know about the life of Abraham, the patriarch Abraham, who is the father of the Jews, God called Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees, which is the land of southern Iraq, or the modern-day Iraq, into the promised land called Israel, which is where Israel is at right now, promising him that his descendants shall inherit this land. Now, when he went there, he didn't inherit the land because God held off the promise until hundreds of years later, but he promised them. Now, when Abraham moved from Ur Chaldees to Canaan, he brought his nephew with him, whose name is Lot. And as they grew together in the land and with all the other people, their herds became abundant. The herdsmen were fighting with each other because they don't get along with each other anymore. They were upset with each other. That is, the people who are within their families. So Abraham, being very meek, he reached out to Lot and said, Hey, let there not be any fight between me and you. Pick your land. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the left, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot, seeing the Jordan Valley, which is a Sodom Gomorrah down there, where there's plenty of water and lush green valley, picked that route, saying, you know what? I'm going to go there. And Abraham said, okay, you got it. It's yours. He bent his will to Lot. Now imagine, God did not promise Lot the land of Canaan. He did not promise Lot the promised land. God promised who? Abraham. God promised Abraham. Now, Abraham could have said, as I would have said in my setting or in the Western setting, American setting, hey, God promised me. God promised me. He didn't promise you. If you don't like being here, you can go home. Right? You didn't get any assent from me. He could have said that. And he would have been right if he said that. However, he didn't because he displayed meekness in his life. 
We in our lives, we're so apart from Abraham. We fight toe-to-toe. We just want to stand toe-to-toe and gain an inch. And we don't want to let an inch. Because we don't act in meekness. And yet, God blesses those who are meek. God blesses those who are meek. So directly after that conversation with Lot and Abraham, what did God do? God brought Abraham over and said, Hey, Abraham, let me show you something. Let me show you something. Look around. Even the land that Lot is going to, anywhere your eyes can see, it is yours. Don't worry about it. I'm going to give it to you. And God did. God gave, God gave all the land to Abraham's descendants. He's going to give more in the eternal kingdom or in the millennial kingdom. And certainly, the Lord blesses us in this way. Jesus blesses those who are humble and meek because those who are humble and meek are the ones who are going to cry out to Jesus for salvation. God saves the humble and the meek. God gives His life to the humble and the meek. Jesus died for the humble and the meek. He gave Him His salvation. He gave Him His perfect life. He gave those who are humble and meek their perfect life. He restored the humble and the meek to the righteous relationship with God. And with that righteous relationship to God, God promises those who are humble and the meek His eternal kingdom, that is the whole earth. You see, one day the whole earth is His eternal kingdom. And it's going to belong to those who belong to Jesus. And what God's going to do is that He's going to take from the strong, from the powerful in this world today, everybody who's fighting toe-to-toe, He's going to just eliminate all of them. And in that day, He's going to give the whole earth to those who follow Him, to those who are His. He's going to give the whole entire earth to the meek and humble. Henceforth, he says here in verse 5, the meek shall inherit the earth. We're going to have everything in this earth. Why? We don't have to fight for it. The world is fighting for it with no end. In the end, we get to have it all. So today, knowing that that's what God's going to do, we can then live in a meek attitude toward God and toward our fellow people. See? God is going to defend us whenever we're attacked. So therefore, we can be meek. We know that God is going to provide for us when others take from us. So therefore, we can be meek. We know that God is going to vindicate us when we are falsely accused. So therefore, we can be meek. We can be meek in this world because we know that Jesus is going to give us everything eventually. However, living in this world, people might think that our meek attitude is a sign of weakness. That being meek is actually living very passively without any pursuits, without any direction, without any vision, without any leadership. Jesus is going to teach us that that is not the case. A meek person actually pursues Jesus as the primary goal and vision of their lives. And we're going to see this display here in the next beatitude where Jesus is teaching. First, we saw that those who belong to the kingdom of God are meek by nature. The next thing we're going to see that those who belong to the kingdom of God are hungering and thirsting after God's righteousness. 
Those who belong to the kingdom of God hungers and thirsts after God's righteousness. Read with me now from verse, or verse in verse 6 of chapter 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Given that Jesus just mentioned that those who are meek are going to inherit the earth, some might thought, some might think, by the way, some might think that those who are meek are indecisive. Those who are meek are weak. And because they're weak and because they're indecisive, they're just simply willing to go along with what everybody tells them to do. Jesus is presenting a different picture. He's saying that those who are meek in the kingdom of God actually lives with a strong backbone, a strong vision, a strong direction in life. And that vision and direction comes from a hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. Now, in our setting, our world, we don't really understand hunger and thirst. We feel hungry whenever we haven't eaten dinner or haven't eaten lunch or we're having eaten lunch at 1 o'clock, we were supposed to eat lunch at 12, so we thought, you know what, I'm hungry. But people back in those days experienced real hunger. They might not have eaten for days. And certainly we know that the Jews were suffering under a brutal taxation system from the Romans. And when Jesus came in in John chapter 6 and made food for 5,000 people, they followed Jesus around for a long time. They wanted that food because they were hungry. They were hungry for earthly things. The Jews were the hungry, they were thirsting for food, but ultimately they were hungering and thirsting for the overthrow of the Romans because they hated that system over them. They were hungering and thirsting for change in their earthly possessions, or they wanted for increase of their earthly possessions. They hungered and thirsted for change in their earthly status. However, as they hungered and thirsted after earthly things, and seeing that Jesus can provide for them earthly things, and Jesus can demonstrate miracles, Jesus actually now is declaring to them that they are hungering and thirsting after the wrong things. They are hungering and thirsting after the wrong things. True blessings comes not when you hunger and thirst after the change of your earthly circumstances. True blessings come when you hunger and thirst after God's righteousness. So he says this. He says, those who are blessed are those who hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God. Now, whenever in Greek you hear about the word hunger and thirst for food, you will see in the Greek language hunger and food, the word of. You don't see the word in English, but in Greek it's very evident. You will hunger of food. You thirst of water. The reason why in the Greek language it used, it, the, the, it's precise in that way is because it's defining the fact that you're not hungering and thirsting for all the food in the world, but you're hungering and thirsting for some of the food, part of the food, in order that you may be filled. That's the reason why the word of is there. Jesus, however, is not using the word of. He's saying you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger, thirst, righteousness. 
Thereby, he's declaring to all that you're not just hungering and thirsting for some part of righteousness of God, as if you desire for some of your life to display righteousness. He's actually saying that you're hungering and thirsting for the entire righteousness of God. You want the entire righteousness of God. You want the whole thing. You want the complete thing. And certainly, Jesus gives us that. That complete righteousness through Jesus Christ is exactly what this beatitude promises. Anyone who follows Jesus is credited with God's perfect righteousness in their life. And if you thirst and hunger after God's perfect righteousness, you're going to have it. Jesus is going to give it to you. He died for you on the cross. He gave His perfect life to you. You're going to have it. God's going to see you as perfect as Jesus is in your entire being. So therefore, those who pursue God with such unrelenting hunger and thirst for God's righteousness is surely going to be satisfied. You're satisfied because God gives you this righteousness. And that satisfaction is what actually leads you to be able to live in meekness in your life. You live in meekness because you're not distracted by people's sinful actions against you. You already have the righteousness of God. You live in meekness because you don't really care whether people notice you or not, or people are you, dismiss, um, dis, uh, very dismissive of you or not, because you already have the righteousness of God. You don't care whether people insult you or not because you have the righteousness of God. Those people who are hungering and thirsting after the righteousness of God cares only about one thing and one thing only. They care about God's righteousness in their life. As long as they can live for God's righteousness, as long as God is glorified, they don't really care about anything else. So therefore, they can live in such meekness because they can forego their preferences, they can forego whatever their wants and desire is in this world, and they submit to others, and all that others can see in their life is meekness, love, and gentleness. See, ones who begin to hunger and thirst after God's righteousness, it changes everything about us. It changes how we interact with others, it changes how we treat others around us, because we begin to care for something else other than our own preferences. I remember for me, I grew up really with a chip on my shoulders. I was a teenager when my family and I, we moved to America and started in middle school, can't speak a word of English. And you know, in middle school, it's, it's really brutal. Even if you can't speak English, it's still a brutal place. You know, kids pick on each other. I was picked on quite a bit. People found me as a foreigner who can't speak English, it looked different than them. And I had a hard time. However, I learned to fight. I learned to fight with my fists. I fought with kids. Every, every year I, I get in fights in school. I was suspended from school one time. And other times I got away. But I also learned, before I learned anything else in the English language, I learned the cuss words. I cussed people out to show them I was tough. I learned the dirty jokes. I cracked the dirty jokes. in order to show people I was tough. See, in that time, I was hungering and thirsting after approval. I was hungering and thirsting after people's approval of me. I was hungering and thirsting after respect. However, when I grew to be about 15 years old or so, I began to sense a different kind of hunger. 
I was going to church at the time, but I was just going to church because my mom and brother was going to church. I didn't really care about going to church. However, around 15 or so, I be- God began to work in my life. I began to feel the weight of sin. Not sure why it happened, but I looked myself in the mirror and I saw sin. I felt a spiritual weight. I felt the weight of lust. I felt the weight of anger. I felt the weight of sin whenever I lied to my mom, to my brother. And the weight felt so heavy on my shoulders that I simply cannot live with it. And I simply cannot ignore it. So I remember every month when I went to, or every week I went to church, and every month they do communion once. And that particular Sunday, the pastor would come up and they would teach what communion is about. He would say, this is the blood of Jesus. This is the body of Jesus. Blood of Jesus shed for you. Blood, a body of Jesus broken for you. And if you desire to know Jesus and desire for him to cleanse you of your sins, this is how he did it. He shed his blood to cleanse your sins. He broke his body to give you salvation. So I heard about it and I said, you know what, one night I said, if God can remove this weight out of my shoulder, this spiritual weight, I would really want that. I would really like to have that. And so by myself on that night, I knelt down on the bed, by the bed, and I prayed to God and I said, God, please forgive me and cleanse me of my sins. And he did. See, when I stood up, I felt this, the weight of sin taken off me. But what wasn't taken off me, which I didn't expect, was the awareness of sin. That stayed with me. I did not know that I was a sinner before that. But that awareness, that sensitivity to sin, that stayed with me the whole time, even till today. I'm still sensitive to sin. And whenever I sin, I still feel weight. The only way that the the weight can be removed is if I continue to repent before God and ask Him to cleanse me of my sins. You see, God, I didn't understand what was happening at that point, but God was working at something in my life. He was saving me. He was saving me. He was giving me salvation by putting within me a brand new desire, a brand new thirst, a thirst not after the approval of men or respect of men or popularity, but the thirst after the righteousness of God. And certainly God does this for each one of us, whether we're saved when we're 15 or saved when we're 50. He saves us by first putting within us that desire for that greater righteousness. We see how sinful we are and we desire for greater righteousness to be in our lives. We want to be right. We want to be pure. Then he tells us, you can have that righteousness in Christ. Jesus gives you that righteousness by dying for your sins on the cross. And he gives you that righteousness by living that righteous life and giving it to you. Jesus restored us to God, restores you to God by making you pure and holy before God. You can have the righteousness of God if you believe unto Jesus and repent of your sins and follow him. So today, if you feel that weight of sin over you and you desire for that greater righteousness to be yours, do not ignore that desire. Do not let that desire fade away from you. Do not walk away from desire, but continue to embrace that hunger and thirst 
continue to cry out to God for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you do, if you knock in that way, the door is going to be open. The door is going to be open to you and you're going to experience a brand new journey with Jesus in your life. You're going to start to live for Jesus. You're going to start to fight your sins for God. You see, you have the perfect righteousness of God. You're already pure before God because of Jesus. But because you have that purity, you now desire for your actual living to be matching of that righteousness which you have been given. You want to be pure before God. So you are going to begin this journey in which you are pure, but you want to be pure as well. You're pure because of Jesus, but you want your actual life to be pure. So you're going to see this journey in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, when God says that you have salvation, but you're going to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and by this you're continually thirsting and continually hungering for the righteousness of God to be in display in your life. Living in holiness means that you're going to read God's word. You're going to discipline yourself to pray. You're going to discipline yourself to come to church. You're going to live in such a way that you're going to do your devotions before you go to work in the morning. You're going to remove things in your life that are causing you to sin, that are distracting you. As a teenager for me, my changes in life was very evident. I stopped cussing. I stopped fighting in school. I stopped telling dirty jokes. And I, start serving at, I started serving at a church. I started playing guitar, music, and singing songs, and leading other kids to, in worship. It was evident, because I started hungering and thirsting after God's righteousness. It's going to produce a change in your life if you do hunger and thirst after God's righteousness in your life. Now, overcoming sins in your life is going to take more than just a personal effort as well. You, you might think it's just going to be me. I'm going to fight against sin on my own. I'm not going to let other people help me. It's going to be me and my sins for God. But scripture actually presents to us a different message. Fighting sin is going to involve the body of Christ. It's going to involve us telling what we're struggling with with our brothers and our sisters in the Lord. And as we tell them, they may walk with us. We see this evidently in display in James chapter 5, verse 16, when God to the Apostle James tells us that we should confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed. I believe that healing means that we're going to grow away from our, grow apart from our sins. We're going to grow to be more holy for God. Many times we continue to sin in our lives because we don't ever tell anybody. We just struggle silently. But God actually promises us that if we actually allow other people to walk with us, we're going to grow in a much faster rate. I can see in my own life the only reason why I have grown in the ways I have is because I shared what I'm struggling with other people and the other people were able to keep me accountable and help me build good habits so that I may walk in the way that God calls us to. I know it is hard. <laughs> okay? I know it's hard. I feel it too. It's embarrassing at times. It's like, man, I don't want to tell nobody what I'm struggling with. Right? I don't want to tell nobody because it's embarrassing. But if scripture commands you to do so, and if you know that this is the only way that you're going to grow out of that sin, and if you truly hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God, you're going to do it. You're going to risk all embarrassment. You're going to do it because you want that righteousness in your life that badly. 
You just want it in your life. You want to have that righteousness in display in your life. Hungering and thirsting after God's righteousness is what allows us to also live in meekness with one another. We talked about this a little bit. You see, when we begin to hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God, we begin to process life differently. When we first came to know Jesus or we're immature or even before we know Jesus, we may process life through the grid of our preferences, what we want, what our wants are, what our preferences are. After we begin to hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God, we begin to process our life through the grid of God's righteousness, what God wants, what He, who He is. We think at that point, if we begin to process our life according to the righteousness of God, as long as God's glorified, as long as God is honored, as long as His righteousness is upheld, as long as we're living holiness for Him, I don't really care about anything else. I can withgo, I can withgo, I can withheld, I can wait, I can prefer, I can bend on pretty much everything else according to the benefit of others. I just don't care anymore. I don't. Because this is not what I'm, I'm here for. I don't fight for that. I fight for God. I process things according to God's righteousness. So therefore, when other people interact with us, they're just wondering, like, how come, how come I can't make you mad? How come I can't make you angry? How come, how come you're just always so meek and humble? It's not just because it's a personality that we have. It's because we are fighting for God. We're not fighting for ourselves anymore. We're not fighting for our preferences anymore. We're fighting for Him. And when unbelievers see such humility and such meekness in our lives, they're drawn to Jesus because they see the character of Jesus in our lives. However, they're even more drawn to Jesus when they see us continue to cry out to Jesus for that greater righteousness. They see, wow, you're a pretty nice person already. You're a pretty kind person already, and yet you always see yourself as a sinner before Jesus. So who is Jesus then? Who is Jesus? They're drawn to know Jesus because they see your greater hunger and thirst for His righteousness. And they're drawn to know Him. So God today is calling us to pursue Him above all else. He's calling us to pursue Him above all else. And those who pursue Jesus belong to the kingdom of God. And those who belong to the kingdom of God display the character of of meekness. If you belong to the kingdom of God, if you belong to Jesus, you're going to be meek. And second, those who belong to Jesus and those who belong to the kingdom of God are going to thirst and hunger for His righteousness. Those two are closely linked. You know, oftentimes I think that we don't pursue God's kingdom or nor do we pursue Jesus because we don't properly diagnose our lives. We don't properly diagnose why we're feeling pain and sorrow in our lives. This Thanksgiving season, as well as preparing for all the busyness and the dinner and inviting family and friends over, I and my wife experienced a slew of sicknesses, and our kids too. We came down with this really horrible sore throat. That was really bad. Never experienced anything like this before. It literally burns when I swallow anything. Like I drink water, I can't even drink water. If I eat anything that's sweet or salty, it burns as it goes down the throat. Now I didn't know what it was. 
I thought it was a, a virus infection. If it was a virus infection, then we could just wait a few days because your body builds an antibody, so it's gonna, you're going to feel better. So we waited for a few days, and we weren't getting any better. I, wasn't, I was just feeling horrible. I can't even get my sermon done because I just lay in bed all the time. Body was aching. I was tired. Can't get up. My wife went to the hospital and found out that it was a bacterial infection, not a viral one. I went to see my dad. My dad looked at it and said, yeah, you have a bacterial infection. My dad is a doctor for many, many years in his life. And when you have a bacterial infection, you must do what? You must take antibiotics. You're going to take antibiotics, otherwise you're going to be feeling this pain for a very, very long time. It probably won't get better. It might get worse. So when my wife and I took the antibiotics, immediately we got better. It was an immediate effect. So today, I call each one of us to properly diagnose our situation and the severity of our sins. You see, if we don't understand that our sins and our pain and our sorrow is actually coming from our sins, then we're not going to take the proper solution. God has given to us a proper solution. Our proper solution is Jesus. We experience pain and sorrow in our lives because of the presence of sin, because of our own sins, because of other people's sin against us, and also because we don't have a relationship with God. However, through Jesus Christ, we can't have that relationship. We can't have that relationship with Jesus. We're going to be healed. We come to Jesus. If we believe unto Him. If we do, He does forgive us. He does heal us. He does restore our relationship with Himself. He is going to rescue us from the decay and from the sin of this world. He's going to put us in His eternal kingdom where we're going to live forever and ever with Him. In that place, there's not going to be any more decayed death or sin. We're going to live life as we're meant to live. In that day, we're going to be living in full righteousness. We're not going to sin anymore. We're going to be joyous because of that. We're going to be healed in our sorrows because of that. We're not, God's going to wipe away our every tear. We're going to be joyous because we're not going to experience sin anymore. But even more so, we're going to be joyous because we're going to be completely satisfied in the fact that we're going to be in God's perfect presence. We're going to be worshiping the righteous God forever and ever in His full glory. And that's what makes us joyful and excited for that day. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful, Lord, that you are pointing us to that kingdom here in this passage, that everlasting kingdom that is never going to go away, nor is it going to be a thing of the past. And certainly for those of us who belong to Jesus, who believe unto Jesus, we're going to enter into that kingdom. Even more so now, Lord, we're experiencing that kingdom in our lives, in our hearts, as we are pursuing your righteousness in our meekness. We pray, Father, that as we are pursuing you in this world, we can indeed demonstrate to everyone who are around us who you are, so that they may also believe unto Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We thank you for this great promise that which you have given to us. We pray, Lord, that we do indeed take you in the solution which you have offered in your death on the cross seriously that we don't walk away from it 
as the Jews have in this passage, but we do indeed embrace the true meaning of what you're teaching us. We're thankful, Lord, for that eternal life. We pray, Lord, that we are indeed looking forward to that eternal life even as we are living on earth. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.